Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. You will be allowed time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a partnership between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and we're delighted to offer you this program today on advances in the treatment of lung cancer. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of this program and for many of our programs, actually, um, uh, so I really want to thank them. And um, we have a lot of you on the call today. Um, there are over 203 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, France, Iraq, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before we move on to um, introducing our first speaker, we're going to just ask you a few brief questions. And the reason we do that is it gives us a sense of the, what you know at this point um, before the program starts. Um, and it's very helpful for us in planning future programs. So um, we appreciate your doing this. And the questions are available to those of you who are live streaming the program. You'll be able to rate the questions. Um, so I'm going to begin with our first question. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the significance of the current standard of care and new treatment approaches for the treatment of lung cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies for lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I understand the role of precision medicine in informing treatment choices for lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And there are just two questions left. I understand tips to manage the side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials for lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions and answering them. Um, for those of you live streaming, it really helps us to better plan programs to meet your needs. And now I'm going to proceed to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is, is Dr. Victoria Lai. And Dr. Lai is Assistant Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lai will be addressing an overview of lung cancer and current standard of care in the context of COVID-19 the role of chemotherapy, targeted cancer therapies, and precision medicine in informing treatment choices, new treatment approaches, managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lay. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, for the kind introduction, and thank you, everyone, for joining the program today. I really appreciate you taking the time for um, us to discuss some of these very important topics. 
Um, the, the first two topics I'll discuss um, in terms of an overview of standard of care and the role of chemotherapy, targeted cancer therapies, and precision medicine in the context of COVID-19 do uh, sort of overlap. So um, I'll, I'll discuss these two um, uh, in, in, in one uh, broader discussion. Um, first of all, with regards to lung cancer care in the context of COVID-19, um, uh, as uh, uh, several of the other speakers, I am based in the United States, and I know that we're very uh, fortunate in this country to have access to vaccines that are not yet readily available to all countries. I think particularly for our patients with lung cancer who would be considered at high risk for COVID-19 complications if they were to contr uh, contract COVID-19, um, if you haven't already been vaccinated for COVID-19, um, this is something that I would strongly recommend that you undergo vaccination as soon as possible. Uh, this is also particularly important for caregivers or anyone who um, lives with our patients. And uh, finally, just to keep in mind, uh, while the approved vaccines have been shown to be extremely efficacious, which is wonderful, um, it, no vaccine is 100%. Uh, we are starting to see patients who have been vaccinated who still contract COVID-19, although um, perhaps with some attenuation in their symptoms and severity of disease. Um, but if you have any symptoms concerning for COVID-19, um, regardless of your vaccination status, um, I would encourage you to uh, reach out to your healthcare team as soon as possible. And, and I do hope that, that with the increasing supply of vaccines, hopefully we'll all be uh, uh, moving forward in, in uh, resolving this pandemic as soon as possible. Um, at this point, um, I think as as the pandemic gets under control more and more, hopefully we are returning. Uh, we're getting closer to uh, returning to um, baseline operations in terms of um, our typical workflow for treatment and management of lung cancer. Um, in terms of, uh, so I'll move on to a quick um, overview of lung cancer treatment, um, which primarily focuses on standard of care. Um, uh, just a caveat that my discussion is from the point of view of a medical oncologist, and I know there are several other speakers in today's program who will share their expertise on other disciplines, including radiation oncology, nursing, and others. Um, as many of you know, the main two families of lung cancer include non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. Um, and non-small cell lung cancer is further divided into adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Um, so I'll focus uh, first on non-small cell lung cancer. Um, we typically divide, when we think about treatment, we typically divide a disease into four stages, which helps um, guide the treatment, development of the treatment plan. Um, we know that stage one to three um, are potentially curable uh, with treatment, while stage four is treatable, but unfortunately not curable. And the definition of stage four disease is involvement of cancer at a distant site outside of the lung. Um, uh, when we think about early stage lung cancer, we typically are referring to stages one to two. And in the past, the treatment has primarily focused on a, a, a approach with surgery and sometimes with chemotherapy following surgery. Um, and when we think about stage three disease, it's typically a uh, larger tumor or more extensive involvement in the chest, um, typically involving the lymph nodes in the center part of the chest. And patients with stage three are what we call locally advanced lung cancer, typically will involve treatment with more than one treatment team or what we call modalities. And the three key modalities of treatment in cancer are include uh, surgery, radiation, and uh, medical-based treatments. In the stage four setting, the approach to uh, cancer care is primarily focused on the medical approach because generally speaking, there are more multiple areas that are involved with surgery and radiation playing more of a supportive role in that setting. Um, the major groups of medications that we use for stage four treatment typically fall into one of three groups, either chemotherapies, which are the traditional IV or some, uh, f with a few oral options that we typically think of um, that have been around for decades. Um, targeted therapies, which are generally pills that uh, act on a specific change in your cancer, and these are typically oral pills, or immunotherapy, uh, which are medicines designed to uh, reprogram and activate your immune system to fight the cancer, and these are medicines usually given through the IV. 
Um, I think one of the biggest shifts and change and development in, uh, it has been in the early stage um, disease uh, setting, uh, namely stages one to three, where we're seeing incorporation um, with multiple uh, with uh, other modalities of treatment in addition to surgery. Um, so from the medicine standpoint, I think, and, and this is not limited to just these two advancements, uh, but one of the key advancements that we've seen has been the addition of EGFR-targeted um, uh, oral therapy, um, namely osimertinib, or uh, to the adjuvant treatment setting after surgery and after standard chemotherapy for stage one to stage three lung cancers. And this is a recent development um, that was uh, that, that was presented uh, and, and published in 2020 and that we've quickly adopted into our, our current practice. So previously for these patients, they would have chemotherapy and surgery, and now they're eligible to receive up to three years of EGFR-targeted treatments if their cancer is positive for the EGFR. EGFR mutation, and that has helped patients live longer without disease. Um, we are also just uh, past our uh, largest annual meeting um, for medical oncology, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, where a new study called Empower 010 um, used a similar concept to test immunotherapy in this treatment space after standard surgery and chemotherapy for stage 1B to 3A lung cancers um, and found that patients were able to live longer without disease. Um, these are very new studies and we, I think one of the key uh, uh, key information that is still missing is we don't know if patients are necessarily going to live longer. Uh, we know that they're going, they're living longer without disease, but do they actually live longer overall um, with the addition of these new treatments? Um, but I think that these are these are just two examples of practice changing um, clinical trials um, that really show how we're incorporating. Uh, uh, and, and combining different modalities of treatment for early stage patients. So, you know, medical treatment is not just being reserved for the stage four setting anymore and can really help to boost cure rates um, in addition to the key um, approaches to treatment. Uh, when we talk about stage four uh, treatment for non-small cell lung cancer, um, the concept of precision medicine has really taken center stage. And the idea of precision medicine is just that we try to tailor the treatment to your cancer's characteristics, whether it's different mutations or different genetic changes or protein changes in your cancer, or whether it's specific immunotherapy markers. Um, and I think the idea of precision medicine has been around longer for stage four disease um, because for, for this uh, disease setting, the focus has been more on, on the medical approach. Um, and this is where I think me precision medicine has started to move into the early stage settings as well. And I, I think that's a, a, a similar to what I was just discussing. I think that's a very key development. Um, we want to help patients with stage four disease live longer and live better, but we also at the same time want to boost cure rates for our earlier stage lung cancer patients. Um, and so I think the key message here is that cancer care is increasingly becoming multi-modality across all stages, and I think it is to the patient's advantage to meet with different teams, even if you have early stage lung cancer, to meet with a surgeon, to meet with a radiation oncologist, to meet with a medical oncologist so that they can all work together to design the best treatment for you. Um, and finally, I want to touch on and approaches. Um, I specifically want to highlight a group of therapies that are becoming more widely adapted in the solid tumor setting, um, which they were previously used primarily for uh, leukemias and lymphomas and blood-based cancers, and we call these uh, new class of medicine cellular-based therapies, and they include treatments like chimeric antigen receptor T-cells or CAR T-cells, um, bispecific T-cell engagers or bite cells, or tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes or TILs. And these treatments are essentially designed to try to um, engineer specific cellular-based products to 
fight your cancer, they're typically more involved, um, and they're, they're treatments that are typically more available at specialized referral centers. Um, and but they, we we've started to see some very promising results um, with these types of treatments, particularly in the stage four setting. So I think um, it's something worth um, discussing with your healthcare team if this is uh, something that your doctor thinks may be a, a good treatment option for you. Um, I'm going to move and shift gears to talking a little bit about managing side effects, symptoms, uh, discomfort, and pain. Um, I think it, with regards to this um, area, the key recommendation I would have is to stay in close contact with your treatment team and let them know about symptoms as they arise in real time. Um, you know, we, we sometimes see patients who feel badly about notifying their providers because they feel that they may be bothering them. And I just want to say that we're all here to help, and we can help the most if we learn about symptoms in real time. Um, the other key suggestion I have is to make sure you discuss with your healthcare provider um, regarding a possible referral to a palliative care team early on if you're experiencing severe symptoms or multiple symptoms. Um, palliative care simply means care that's aimed to improve the quality of life of someone going through treatment of a severe illness. And I would count cancer diagnosis in that category, um, regardless of the stage. Um, I think palliative care is often confused with hospice care. And that that term can cause quite a bit of anxiety and distress, but it's it's really not. Um, it, they they're there to help you manage any types of symptoms or discomfort, uh, ranging from nausea, vomiting to acute or chronic pain. Um, and I work closely with our own palliative care team to care for all of our patients, uh, regardless of their stage of disease. And I think this is something that can greatly benefit patients and their families. Um, to have more support um, to manage symptoms. And uh, lastly, I, I'll just briefly touch on the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. Um, as we discussed previously, many aspects of healthcare had to shift during COVID-19, and one of the biggest changes that we saw was the shift to using more telemedicine for patients and providers to stay in, uh, to stay in contact and also to minimize exposures um, during, uh, during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I do think that telemedicine is here to stay, and it's it's likely going to be a tool um, that's available to us even after the COVID-19 pandemic is completely resolved. Um, I, I think that, you know, it, it's really up to the patient and the provider in terms of what works for them. Um, personally, for me, I don't really prefer telemedicine for my patients undergoing active treatment who may have several ongoing symptoms or issues, but I think that it serves a wonderful role for patients who are relatively stable or who may be traveling from far away um, or traveling for second opinions. I think it's it's really a, a wonderful tool for, for um, uh, doctors to be able to, for healthcare teams to be able to uh, connect with their patients. Um, and I think the key point here is that I do think it's here to stay, telemedicine is here to stay, and whatever preference you have for interacting with your treatment team is perfectly appropriate to voice your preferences so that you feel the most comfortable in your care plan. Um, with that, I'll hand the program uh, back to Carolyn. And Carolyn, thank you for the opportunity to join everyone during this program today, and thank you uh, to everyone for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lai. That was a superb presentation, really excellent. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, but just beautifully presented, really. Uh, a lot of uh, very valuable information and presented with expertise, but also with a great deal of uh, thought and compassion. So thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Uh, Ken Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig is Professor and Chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation oncology, types of radiation oncology, how clinical trials contribute to treatment options, key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns and follow-up care, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of prepared questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Hi. Thank you very much, uh, um, Dr. Messner, and thank you for having me on today's conference. Um, so, as Carolyn said, I'm going to be talking uh, about the role of radiation oncology and very similar to what Dr. Lai described, uh, depending on how advanced the lung cancer is, radiation has different roles. 
So, for example, in early stage lung cancer, and, and these are situations where the tumor is just confined to the lung, um, if someone can't have surgery, the radiation is used as the curative treatment. So, um, again, someone might not be able to have surgery because of um, other medical issues or problems with their heart or their lung. And in these situations, the radiation is the only treatment, and the goal is to completely cure the cancer and, uh, and destroy all the tumor cells with the radiation. In situations where we've seen the um, tumor spread to the lymph nodes, but it still hasn't spread anywhere else, or as Dr. Lai described, a locally advanced disease, uh, then radiation is also um, used for curative intent, um, but usually uh, with chemotherapy. So patients will get chemotherapy and radiation at the same time. And uh, as we'll discuss in just a second, the radiation is, is delivered slightly differently in that situation. Uh, there's a special situation where the tumor has spread outside of the lung, but it just might be in one spot or just a few spots. And the feeling is if we use radiation or surgery to just knock out those little spots, it's going to help people live longer. Um, so the technical name for this is oligometastatic disease, which just means just a few spots. So, um, so sometimes we are giving radiation, you know, just to a spot in the brain or um, a spot in the bone or, or something like that, and that's been shown to help people live longer um, in, in some small studies. So that's something we do very commonly as well. And then finally, um, we do use radiation very frequently for palliation of symptoms. So this is usually a situation where the cancer has spread outside of the lung and is causing uh, pain or discomfort. So a, a very classic use of that is if there's uh, the, uh, the positive cancer in the bone and it's causing bone pain. And so we might give radiation to help alleviate the pain and also help make the bone a, a little bit stronger so, um, so someone doesn't get a fracture of the bone, which obviously can be very debilitating. So depending on the role of the radiation, we have different types of radiation uh, that could be given. So probably the standard radiation is uh, three-dimensional radiation uh, or um, intensity-modulated radiation. So this is, you know, classically when you hear someone is getting radiation, that's what they typically mean, you know, IMRT, intensity-modulated radiation, where the beams are coming in from different directions, um, and trying to avoid uh, normal structures. And that might be a type of course of radiation someone gets for a you know, number of weeks in a row, six weeks or so. Uh, there's a special type of radiation called stereotactic radiation. And this is um, when we give radiation for just a few treatments. So it could be as few as, well, one really, but typically three to five treatments. And it's a very, very high dose of radiation. So the dose can be as much as 10 times higher than a, a typical radiation dose. And it's really when you're treating something that's very small and you want to get a very intense dose there. And a high, each, when you're giving a high dose each day, it seems that that works better in eradicating uh, cancer. Uh, but because of the side effects, this can only be used when the tumor is very, very small. So the classic situation for this is um, an early-stage lung cancer, uh, which might just be a half inch or so, and you give a very, very high dose of focused radiation with a stereotactic technique. And that treatment takes a little longer than your typical daily radiation, uh, just because we do a lot of scans to make sure that we're um, hitting the target exactly to within two millimeters. So you really want to be very careful with it because you don't, you don't even want to be off by a tenth of an inch when you're giving such a high dose of radiation. It's almost, we, we sometimes think of it almost like a surgical technique, even though it isn't a surgery. So there's no anesthesia, there's no cutting, no staying in the hospital, but we have kind of the same mentality as a surgery. And then another type of 
radiation uh, that we sometimes use is called proton radiation or proton beam radiation. So this is a very specialized form of radiation, um, it, and it has its own facility. And these are very large, expensive facilities. So typically, um, a city might have one proton center. Uh, some cities uh, uh, don't don't even have one, and people have to move if if, if they uh, need to get the treatment. Uh, we have one here in uh, New York City, and. Proton radiation is not for every patient with cancer. It's really for some very specialized situations when the tumor is right next to a, a structure in the body that can't tolerate radiation. So a classic example is a tumor that's right by the spinal cord, which is a very sensitive structure to radiation. So you want to avoid giving too much radiation to the spinal cord which can cause problems with sensing things or, or, or moving your muscles. So proton radiation can be very helpful. We also use it uh, in almost all children that we treat just because, you know, we hope for children to live, you know, decades and decades, uh, and there could be um, secondary side effects to radiation, such as second cancers that can happen, you know, 30 years later. So we do try to uh, avoid those and use proton radiation. So not every lung cancer patient needs radiation. I'd say, you know, maybe one out of 15, there's a situation where the tumor is next to an a, a important structure or someone needs to get a second course of radiation, and we want to limit the dose uh, to the normal part of the body. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, how clinical trials um, help with treatment options. So, you know, we have the ways that we treat cancers now and, and all the great innovations that Dr. Lai spoke about, we've learned through clinical trials. Um, so, you know, clinical trials, you know, are situations where, you know, someone's getting a, a new type of therapy, but it's usually not something radically different that, you know, some mad scientist produced in a lab and it's smoking and and we put it, you know, straight into the per to the person. Obviously, we don't do things that way. So what's typically happening is we're trying, you know, uh, a new combination of medicines or um, two medicines that, you know, haven't been used together previously or radiation and a chemotherapy, both of which are known to be safe but maybe haven't been used together previously to see if it's uh, helping people live longer. So one trial that's, you know, uh, that we're enrolling in right now is using immunotherapy, you know, the treatment that Dr. Lai was talking about, with the stereotactic radiation. And we're hoping that, you know, these two treatments, both of which we know are safe, when put together might um, help cure even more people with lung cancer than either one alone. So that's the type of uh, trials that we do. And, you know, uh, people who enroll on them uh, really get the uh, advantage of maybe having cutting-edge treatment, uh, you know, years before it could be available uh, to everyone and years before it becomes a standard of care. So it is something that we do encourage uh, people to consider when, when they're getting treatment. Um, and so some of the questions that we, you know, that I would recommend someone ask their doctor before they get treatment, um, I know a lot of people focus on you know, you know, the actual mechanics of the treatment and the side effects during treatment. And, of course, those are important, and those are things to focus on. Uh, but I think uh, other important questions is, you know, what's my life going to be like a year from now? So, you know, are there going to be any side effects or problems that I'm going to have uh, that might pop up later? And, uh you know, and sometimes I think about this, you know, the same way, you know, those of us who have had children, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, having the baby and what happens when you're in the hospital. But sometimes what's more important is what happens, you know, when you get home and, and you know, the, the, the people in the hospital aren't there to help you anymore. And and that's when, you know, the work really begins. So, so same, same way with uh, your cancer treatment. So if if part of your lung is going to be cut out, you know, what does that mean a year from now? Am I going to be able to go shopping, or am I going to need help with that? Uh, if I'm getting radiation, um, I, am I going to have pain 
uh, from the radiation or trouble breathing from the radiation. And of course, there are some also some uh, side effects from chemotherapy that can happen months or years later as well. So I think those are important questions to ask in addition to the short-term problems and quality of life issues uh, that might pop up. Uh, and finally, uh, just in the, in the last minute or so, uh, to talk about uh, telehealth. Uh, so, you know, again, you know, telehealth has been a very important uh, thing uh, for patients and uh, providers, uh, especially during the pandemic. And I think it certainly, and I agree, it certainly will have a role in the years to come. And I think, you know, a lot of the preparation for a telehealth visit is exactly the same as a visit that's going to be in person. You, you want to have questions to ask, what the different options are. But I think one of the great advantages of a telehealth visit is that um, if you have, you know, resources or information Instead of having to ca carry them with you to the doctor's appointment, you can have it right there. And if it's o over one of these apps like uh, Microsoft Teams or Zoom, you can have uh, friends and family from all over the world uh, at your appointment without them having to you know, fly into the city uh, where you are. And that could be a great benefit um, to just have a, a second set of ears there um, and you know, someone else who can interpret things for you. And I think it's very important to uh, write questions down. I, I always joke that, um, you know, if you, if you, you know, use a parking lot and, and pay for the parking, as soon as you pay for the parking, you think of a, another question for the doctor, and, and you don't want to go back in and ask it. So I think it's always important to write the questions down as you think of them. You know, we all have um, our smartphones with us these days, and it's very easy to just uh, jot something down at your next appointment, uh, review it with the physician, and or the nurse or the other providers, and I think that's a good way so you don't have that um, anxiety when you're actually at the visit to have to remember every every question that you wanted to ask. So I'll finish up there, and, and I hope we have some uh, good questions that we'll have a chance to answer. And thank you very much again for your attention. Doctor, thank you, Dr. Rosenzweig, for that excellent and outstanding presentation. It was fantastic and a lot of wonderful information for everybody. And our next speaker is Ms. Donna Wilson. Ms. Wilson is Clinical Fitness Specialist, Integration Integrative Medicine Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And she'll be addressing the, importance, the important role of activities of daily living. Um, and I'm, it's my pleasure to refer over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Wilson. Oh, thank you, Carolyn, and welcome, everyone. Today I really want to... Uh, really impressed to you about a few things that's really, really important. And one is keep moving. I know when you are going into treatment, you tend to feel tired or you feel fatigued, which does cause from surgery or radiation or from chemotherapy. But the important thing is try to get yourself to move. The important thing is, is that we use the muscles on our chest wall to breathe. So it's really important, even just doing some upper body movements and stretching and flexibility so you can really expand the lungs really well and to really strengthen the diaphragm, which is really the largest muscle we have for breathing. So I would say that even if you just want to do relaxation breathing or think about when you are doing an activity, there are ways to make that activity easier for you is if you have the proper breathing technique. I think the best and most uh, common uh, thing I can tell you is that going upstairs are really exhausting and they are really cardiorespiratory um, challenging for many people. But if you think about it and you take one step at a time and breathe out on each step, you'll get to the top and not feel so extremely breathless. The other thing is when you feel extremely breathless after doing an activity or you had to run quickly to go uh, get something or you were late for an appointment and you're rushing, just stop what you're doing, put your chin down, and breathe out. And all of a sudden when that feeling of breathlessness goes away, then you can start kind of getting your activity back. 
So there's ways of controlling your pattern of breathing. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was what exercises would you do? Well, you know, I think the exercises you could do, your stair climbing, or you could stand up and down from a chair a few times. But again, when you lift your body off a chair, you breathe out, and then you don't get so breathless. Because every muscle contraction you need in your body, you do, takes oxygen. So you really want to make sure that you breathe really well. If you breathe out, then automatically you're going to get more good oxygen in. So it does make a difference. But the, the other exercises are just even if you do, you know, put your arms over your head. And as you put your arms up over your head, you breathe out as you put your arms over your head. But most importantly, keep moving. I'm not saying exercise and I'm not saying fitness. I'm just saying my tagline in all the years I've been doing this is to, for people to keep moving to feel better. So we know now that treatment is so much better and people are living longer that you want to know when treat, treatment's over that you can enjoy your activities of daily living and it won't take you so long to get back. You know, we, we like patients to do 150 minutes of activity. It doesn't matter what the activity is. It could be 30 minutes of walking five times a week, or you could break it down in any way, or do a, do a little bit of resistance training, whether it's with an elastic band or with some weights. But most importantly, reach out and try to find someone that you can work with. So many classes are on Zoom now, so it's most important that you can find something and we can we can provide you that, that level of of movement so you feel better. So I'm going to leave now and just say to you, most importantly, keep moving and make sure when you're moving, as if you're when you're outside walking, maybe just breathe in and out of your nose a little bit or do that stair climbing. Breathe out through your lips. Most importantly, try. Go online and see what classes are available for you. I'm online. I'm on YouTube. So if you ever want to look my name up, it's there, Donna Wilson. So hopefully be well. And most importantly, we know that treatments are doing so wonderful now and live, you're going to be enjoying your quality of life. All right. So keep moving and keep that perfect exchange, breathing in and out. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Donna, and that really is wonderful. And that tagline of keep moving is one that you might want to put in different places in your home. So remember to just keep moving, which is really so important. Um, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful tagline. So thank you. Thank you, Ms. Wilson. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian. Um, at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be dis discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment um, by providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. And um, oftentimes can really make a difference in your continuity of treatment. If you aren't eating and drinking enough, sometimes that can cause some delays. So it's so very important. So your diet may be modified during and or after cancer treatment just to assist with your unique side effects and how you experience your treatment. Some of the potential side effects um, include things like dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, decrease in appetite, and an increase in fatigue. During your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can increase. Oftentimes, you may um, require additional calorie and protein needs um, just based on how your body's um, utilizing nutrients and any of the impacts and side effects from the treatment that you're, you're undergoing. So if you're not able to meet your nutrition needs, it can impact your overall health. It can even result in a delay in treatment, your tolerance to treatment, and so a dietitian is on your healthcare team to help you with modifying your diet as you need to, to get those nutrition, to get the nutrition and protein in that you need. So a dietitian can help by providing um, your calorie and protein goals, your fluid goals, information on modifications, and other suggestions um, to help carry you through um, your treatment course. Oftentimes with lung cancer, patients can become even more fatigued with eating, so by 
um, filling full quickly, maybe they're sleeping more than they normally do, so their eating hours are reduced. So it's very important that you are mindful of some of these things that you're experiencing so you can talk with your team about it. Even being overweight, you can still become malnourished. A lot of patients think, I have weight on me, excess weight, it's not a big deal. But actually it is, because when you're undergoing cancer treatment and you're losing weight, what you're actually losing is muscle mass. And muscle mass is very hard to replete as we age. Um, And muscle is what gives us the energy to do the things that we enjoy, gives us the endurance, it helps us breathe, swallow, talk, get up out of chairs. So it's essential. Now, if you are experiencing side effects, please talk with your healthcare team. They can give you medications to help with this and then talk with you on how and when to take them. And so please talk with them sooner than later. Dehydration is also a challenge. And so if you're dehydrated, it can actually make you feel more nauseated, increase your fatigue, and make you feel dizzy. Fluids, anything that is liquid at room temperature, so water, milk, sports drink, and in general, most people need between 64 and 80 ounces a day. Treatments such as radiation may require an increase in your fluid needs, so be sure to talk to your healthcare team about that. In closing, there are several members of your healthcare team dedicated to you. Please reach out to them and um, let them help you during your treatment. That concludes my portion of this presentation. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Dearden. That was an excellent presentation and a lot of wonderful tips in terms of just, you know, the a lot of people have questions about nutrition and hydration, and I think you've addressed many of them. So thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is is Ms. Katie Brown. Ms. Katie Brown is with the Longevity Foundation. She's Vice President, Support and Survivorship Programs. And she, um, I have to say that it's a pleasure to work with the Longevity Foundation and with Ms. Brown um, on a number of our lung cancer initiatives. Um, We are really partnering with them on almost all the lung cancer programs that we do. And I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brown, who will be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services. She'll talk a bit about the lung cancer Helpline Plus, Upline, and um, their website as well. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brown. Thank you for having me, Dr. Messner, um, and thank you to all the esteemed colleagues that are on um, this teleconference today. Uh, so I, I definitely uh, want to reiterate um, some of the thoughts voiced by um, previous speakers about um, the data coming out of ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, who just had their meeting. Um, for patients who are joining on the call, uh, on the Longevity website, we have highlighted some of the most impactful and interesting studies that are presented in a very health literate way. So if you want to visit our website, you can take a look at that and you can see um, some of the, the different data on the many different aspects of lung cancer treatment. Um, At Longevity, um, people who are impacted by lung cancer get help navigating their cancer from our website, from our lung cancer helpline, from um, our survivor and caregiver mentors who have been where they are. Uh, Patients can connect with us to sign up for the program, and we will match them with mentors who have the same diagnosis and same, same disease so that they can get and give advice, encouragement, and hope. Um, we also have virtual Zoom patient meetups four times a week. These are multiple uh, private patient and caregiver groups online. And we do have oncogene type groups as well for those who are diagnosed with um, many different types of lung cancer. Um, anyone with lungs can get, get lung cancer. So uh, definitely reach out to those of us at Longevity if you are looking for information or if you're looking for support. Uh, you can also... Uh, Contact our helpline if you need um, information on financial resources, uh, professional psychosocial help. And this is, again, in partnership with Cancer Care, and the line is answered by oncology social workers. So visit us at www.longevity.org. And thank you, Dr. Messner, for having us on the teleconference today. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Brown. That was wonderful, and it's wonderful to have you on the call, and the helpline is wonderful, and all the services that you provide are wonderful. So I really want to thank you very much for um, all that you're doing. Um, 
And um, now I'm going to just say a few words about um, Cancer Care's um, services and programs. And um, so I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education um, at Cancer Care. And I just want to describe for you briefly the services that you can access um, for free from Cancer Care. And as you've just heard um, from Ms. Brown, that we actually, um, the Longevity um, Helpline is a partnership between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care and is staffed by our oncology social workers. And it's a wonderful um, place to call when you have questions and concerns regarding lung cancer. Um, so Cancer Care is an organization that's a national in scope, and we we provide our services primarily from oncology social workers. We have about 35 of them, and um, we provide a host of services. So one we've heard about is the um, the um, the uh, longevity hope helpline, and then the other one is uh, Cancer Care has a uh, helpline that you can call as well. And actually, I should say at the end of today's program, actually by tomorrow, you'll be getting a survey monkey from us at Cancer Care, and it will be an evaluation of the program, but it also will include all the different um, you know, uh, links that we've provided throughout the program so that you'll be able to have them um, at your fingertips as well. Um, so our oncology social workers do answer the phone, and, they, and people often call for support. And we also provide... Um, uh, practical financial and co-payment assistance, which people find very helpful, particularly at this time. Of course, people often have great financial need. And we also um, offer online support groups and case management services, as well as these workshops, we have about 75 of them per year, and also publications. So that gives you a a thumbnail sketch of the services that we offer. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, I would like to uh, ask you just a few questions, again, um, to get a sense of, um, of uh, what you've taken in from this program. So I'm going to ask these questions, and if you could just respond to them. Um, those of you who are um, live streaming the program will be able to answer the questions. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more confident about my knowledge of the current standard of care and new treatment approaches for the treatment of lung cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of the important role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies for the treatment of lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of precision medicine in informing treatment choices for, for lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in, the, in these questions. Again, it will give us a better opportunity to understand um, your, your understanding of lung cancer um, based on this program, and we also will be able to better inf 
uh, develop programs to better meet your needs. So that's really the goal of this. And so we thank you for helping um, to participate in this. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. And Michelle will explain how to queue up for questions. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. We have a question from one of our online participants. Um, for This is for Dr. Lay. My doctor suggested targeted cancer therapy. Will that be my only treatment, or can targeted cancer therapy be combined with another treatment? And if you could answer this in a general way, of course. Um, so generally, if uh, patients uh, in, in the stage, um, uh, generally targeted treatments um, are used uh, alone, although there are clinical trials um, seeking to combine certain targeted treatments with other uh, a, a modal, uh, other types of uh, uh, medical treatments, such as immunotherapy. Um, but for right now, most of the approvals are for um, targeted therapy use alone. It doesn't preclude patients from having other types of therapies, like chemotherapies or immunotherapies. Um, it, if you have a uh, mutation or, or a change, or alteration in your cancer, it just it's a good thing because it generally means you have additional treatment options available to you that other patients may not have. Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question for you, Dr. Lay. My doctor is suggesting a second biopsy. Why is that? So um, I didn't, that, that's a great question. I didn't get to touch on this, but um, um, in the era of precision medicine, particularly as it, re uh, as it pertains to targeted treatments, um, when cancers are exposed to targeted therapies, they can undergo um, additional mutations and changes. Um, it's sort of like uh, the development of antibiotic resistance. As the cancer sees more of the medicine, um, it will try to change itself to grow around it. So sometimes when cancer is growing after a prior targeted treatment, uh, we will recommend a repeat biopsy so that we can profile the cancer uh, completely again to find additional new targets of uh, treatment. Um, and sometimes that may mean switching to a different targeted treatment or combining tra targeted treatments. Um, and it may make uh, it may allow patients to be uh, eligible for newer clinical trials as well. Excellent, thank you. And a question uh, for Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, Question about um, uh, when is radiation uh, treatment appropriate um, for lung cancer, um, although you've addressed this, um, versus um, chemotherapy? If you could, um, again, just uh, highlight this. Yeah, sure. So um, a simple way to think about it is, you know, chemotherapy travels uh, throughout the body. Uh, so it's you know it's going to be the preferred treatment you know when the tumor has spread or you're you're trying to um, treat the cancer in, in a spot it's at and and also uh, destroy any cells that you you possibly possibly there but can't be seen. Radiation is really only used when there's a tumor that we can see and we want to destroy it with the radiation. So again, an, a, a an early stage lung cancer, we're going to give a high dose of radiation to uh, take care of it in the lung. And for a more advanced one, we spread the treatment out over a number of weeks, um, again, but aiming the radiation at, at the area where we see the cancer. So in a lot of ways, radiation is a replacement uh, to surgery. If you're not going to cut the tumor out, then you give radiation instead to cure it. Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question for Dr. Lai. Um, should I ask, should I talk to my doctor about comprehensive biomarker testing? When is it appropriate? Um, that's that's a great question. Um, I would, uh, it's definitely appropriate in the stage four setting. And um, as I mentioned, uh, as I discussed briefly, uh, in the early stage setting, we are starting to see more of a role 
for um, biomarker testing. And specifically, I, uh, when we think about biomarkers, we're thinking about uh, a mutation, uh, testing the cancer tissue for mutations and changes in the tissue, as well as immunotherapy marker testing. Um, and so um, I, I, I think the, the key point is at any stage of your uh, lung cancer treatment, I would recommend that you talk to your uh, care team about comprehensive biomarker testing. I think it's, it's helpful information, and we're starting to see that even for patients as early as having stage 1 cancer, it might be useful information and might actually impact and change your care plan. And this is a question probably for both Dr. Um, Rosenzweig and um, for Dr. Lay. I, I have a lung nodule. Should I get screened for lung cancer? Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll start there. Um, so if if you just took, you know, 100 people off the street um, and got a scan on them, more than half would actually have something abnormal in the lung. So, and, and maybe one of those out of the 100 people, it, it's going to be, um, or even less than that, is it's going to be something that needs to be investigated or cut out or could potentially be a cancer. Um, so if you have, and, and there's some very set you know, uh, characteristics, if you've been a smoker, if you're of a certain age or a history of other cancers, then screening is something you should discuss with your primary care physician, and it is something that's typically recommended. Um, if you don't have uh, those risk factors, then it, then it might not be uh, something that's appropriate for you. Um, so if there already is a nodule in your lung, it probably needs to be followed, you know, de depending on the size and how it looks, maybe once a year or so. And, you know, here at my institution, you know, there are some people you know, we follow, we've been following for almost 30 years and, and haven't needed any intervention. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different pathways once, once you've seen a nodule on a scan, and, and most of them lead to nothing to worry about. Dr. Lay, anything you want to add? Um, uh, that, I felt like that was very um, eloquently put, Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, it, it, you're absolutely correct. Um, it, it, lung, uh, lung nodule screening and screening for lung cancer, I think it does tend to be a little bit more complicated than some of the other screening um, tests that are generally recommended for adults because the lung is an open environment with, it's an open system with the environment. So as we age and pollution and various other exposures, um, all of us will see some kind of scarring. If you had pneumonia, you can have nodules. Um, the most important thing to note is just change over time and the rate of change. So if you have prior scans that also show a nodule from, you know, several years ago or a few years ago, um, you can be reassured that that's probably nothing. Um, anything less than a centimeter on a scan is very difficult to biopsy, and we generally will watch those nodules. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have lung cancer, um, and it doesn't necessarily even mean that you need to go straight to a biopsy, but I think it is important that you have a go-to uh, person, whether it's your primary care physician or a pulmonologist, who is making sure that they are monitoring the nodule for any changes um, with repeat imaging at regular intervals. Excellent. Thank you. This is really excellent. I, and I now we have many more questions, but we are. Um, I want to thank our speakers because you've been extraordinary. All of the speakers have been really remarkable. I want to thank also um, the participants also for asking such really terrific questions. And um, I know we could go on well, for at least another hour or so because there's so many questions. So I do want to uh, comment about that. Um, um, but this has been a phenomenal call, uh, just really because of um, both the speakers and the participants really asking such great questions today. Um, so I do want to first of all address those of you who've asked, who who actually asked a question, didn't get to ask a question, or thought of a question during the program. Those three, three of you, um, three different. Uh, there are lots of you in those categories, and I would say to you. Um, Please take whatever you've learned back to your treating healthcare team. So if you asked a question, got information, learned something on the call, how it applies to you, take it back to your treating healthcare team. They know the most about you. And if you have a question that you haven't yet asked, healthcare team is a good place to start. Um, I think that um, 
the other thing I would suggest is that um, um, the the helpline that Longevity um, Foundation provides is a good place also to call. Um, it's a credible, uh, certainly wonderful site to go to, as well as their website as well. And so we send you information about places to get more additional information. And for those of you who would like to take advantage of the general services that Cancer Care Office, they um those um, you can just contact Cancer Care for that, and we'll be sending you all those numbers and websites that you can access that information quite easily in the Survey Monkey when you get that um, from us, which will probably be tomorrow. Um, most importantly, um, now in today's world, many people feel alone. With cancer, one feels alone, and with COVID in the backdrop, people feel are in the forefront. Sometimes one feels even more alone. So we want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. We're all here to help you, and there are lots of organizations out there to help you and your healthcare team. Um, and so please take advantage of your healthcare team. And also, when your healthcare team, please find out the coverage evenings, weekends, and holidays, because those seem to be the time when things seem to happen that people have questions. So be sure that you know who's on call, who you can call in those times. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.